the great transition has begun and the personalization of finance has started. In this episode of Web3 with Sam Kamani podcast, I am interviewing Emmanuel Daniel, who is the acclaimed author of the award-winning book, The Great Transition, The Personalization of Finance is Here. And in this episode, we talk about what is going to be the future of finance and how it's going to impact this world, how it's going to impact you. And in this wide-ranging discussion, we also talk about things such as approaching crypto, approaching the future of finance from first principles. We talk about things like as the cost of risk, FTX, scams, decentralization versus centralization. We also talk about other great economists such as Adam Smith, Ronald Coase, Bitcoin, deflation, the rise of stable coins, and so much more. And when it comes to talking about such topics, there are very few people who are as qualified as Emmanuel Daniel. He is the founder of the Asian Banker Media, as well as founder of many other finance-related organizations. Finally, I want to say, that I do not monetize this podcast by running ads and I have only one thing to ask you and that is that please leave a review and a rating for this podcast on Apple Podcasts and share this episode with a friend so we can share this knowledge with more people so we can equip more people on how to tackle future, on how to be successful in future. Hello, innovators, explorers, and risk takers. Welcome to another episode of the Web3 with Sam Kamani podcast. I'm your host, Sam Kamani. I am an Amazon best-selling author, a tech startup founder, and a strategic advisor to multiple Web3 startups. I'm here to take you on a journey to explore the world of Web3, all the risks, all the opportunities, and my goal is to educate you about what other people, the founders, the investors, what are they building? What are they paying attention? So you can take advantage of it. So you can benefit from it. However, I would like to start with saying that this is not investment advice. I would still highly encourage you to do your own research. I have nothing to sell you. So with that out of the way, let's get into it. So Emmanuel, it's always a pleasure to talk with you and I'm so looking forward to this conversation. I'm so excited to find out everything that you've been working on. For some of our audience who doesn't know, can you give them a bit of an intro about what you are doing these days or what you are working oh, on? These uh, greetings to you from New York. I've been in the US for um, just quite, I think in total six months this year. I, I, I spent my time between Singapore, which is where I'm from originally. And, and then Beijing, I have very stable business. And, and then in, in the U.S., where I've been spending more time preparing for the launch of my book, which was in October, on October the 20, 22nd this year. And I've been going around in the U.S. speaking with many fintech-type organizations and sharing the ideas that I have. I'm the founder of The Asian Banker, which I founded 27 years ago, 28 years ago, in 1996. 
that gave me a basis for understanding a lot of what's happening in banking, in traditional banking. I've been able to follow the, the developments in traditional banking, both on the business side, as well as on the innovation side of the industry as a whole, globally, not just in Asia. And today we are in the Middle East, in Africa, and spending more time in the US and also having made friends with some very key people in the US banking system, I've been able to circle in terms of understanding how innovation in finance works globally. I think today, what I tend to do is to take a step back and assess the industry not as a player, but who someone as someone who knows all the different players there are in the world today, uh, and then subject that to some very basic understanding of what finance really is about. And that's how I came to writing this book, The Great Transition, The Personalization of Finance is Here. So the thesis that I'm providing is that technology is taking finance and actually technology itself is making a transition from its platform origins to what I call personalization. But in the book, somewhere in the middle of the book, I go back to revisiting some of the key themes in finance that defines the industry, the DNA of the industry, and then try and track how that evolves into the future with technology and so on. And one of the one of the themes, for example, is the fact that finance is actually a balance sheet business. It's not a technology business. So when I say that, uh, when I assess buy now, pay later, for example, I don't assess it from a technology point of view. The technology actually is puts out so many bells and whistles, a lot of noise out there in terms of recreating what was traditionally lending business. And then I look back into the balance sheet and the BNPL players in terms of their cost of funds, the risk that they're taking on, and the markets in which they serve, where they, if they serve in more traditional markets and established markets, they're actually dredging the bottom of the barrel as opposed to providing credit to new, they call it the unbanked and so on. In traditional markets, there's very few unbanked, in fact, high-risk customers. And then the cost of the business is what kills them. So these are some of the, uh, the themes I hope that gives your, your viewers and your listeners an idea of where I'm coming from. That's fantastic. So when you say the great transition or the title of your book, how can, what do you mean by the great transition? What is this transition? Is it going from, I don't know, <laughs> wholesale to retail? Is it, I don't know, empowerment of the masses? What is this great transition? What I'm saying is that technology itself is in a great transition. And I start the book by, actually, the, the book has the, a visual of an ice cube. Ice melting. Yeah. I, I start by explaining to people who don't understand, don't think that there's, uh, that finance sounds very te technical and so on, to say that, think about ice. There was a time when ice was sawn out of the lakes of Michigan or Boston and so on, and then put on horse carriages and even on ships and sailed very far away in order to find its way to the vegetable market and ice in your ice cube in your glass of gin and tonic and so on. Now, and where do we get our ice today? We get it from a refrigerator. And that gives you great control as a user uh, as to use ice when you want it, where you want it, how much you want it and so on. And finance is going through exactly that transition. When we think about how money moves around the world today, it, it swashes around the world before it reaches your pocket. And it's subject to everything from exchange rates, cost of transfer, risks and fees and, and inflation and so on. The ordinary person is not in control of finances in as much as he wants it wants to be. Now, a lot of the transitions taking place in cryptocurrencies and so on is making finance personable, meaning that it's, it's great. It's increasingly in your control. 
At the same time, technology that used to be on HD and URLs are today through blockchain and related technologies, moving power of data and uh, control of data to the user, the individual. And what, when as that evolves, you will see that the platform model will increasingly find it difficult to to be to be profitable and, and also to create business models that work. The whole idea that you build a platform, onboard as many customers as possible, and then monetize them, that model is starting to wither at the sides. Um, and when I say this to the platform people, they say, no, that's not going to happen. That's not happening at all. They are pretty much in denial. And then I remind them that the platform industry itself almost didn't make the transition from desktop to mobile. There was a time when Facebook, within three years of coming into existence, the industry had moved to mobile and Facebook didn't make that transition yeah. very well. And today, not making the transition against new mobile native players like TikTok. And TikTok itself will not will find it difficult to make a transition into device independent and and, and, and three-dimensional metaverse and all of those new technologies coming on screen. So on the technology front, we see that that the devices are transitioning and the platforms are transitioning and the end user has greater control over his data. Now, this will translate into finance where end users will have greater control over what they consider to be assets and transactions of those assets. There's a lot happening on the front. So my job is to simplify everything that is happening and then track the trends and to validate them against the basic ideas that I have in my book. In fact, this week alone, with all the all that is happening in FTX and so on, I'm just validating that, <clears throat> that the ideas that I've put together in my book are still valid and these are the ideas that are care some of these incidences that happen. So the incidences themselves don't validate anything, just part of a trend. But as long as they fall under the categories of the basic premises of the transition, I'm good. I think that the transition is well underway. Yeah, thinking about FTX, how does that fit in with the transition? What's interesting about FTX and all kinds of cryptocurrencies, if we... If we start with the first principles, with the correct first principles, we see a totally different story unfurling, okay? Now, the first principles of cryptocurrencies is not that an FTX can go up in value and then crash or that Bitcoin went up to 65,000 and now it's in, in crypto winter. The first principle of crypto is that all of us can create our own cryptos. You can, I can, anyone listening to this podcast can, and it's very easy. And and we create cryptos around what we want to achieve as individuals and the kind of transactions that we want to participate in and the kind of value that we want to capture. In my book, for example, I talk about community currencies where in closed communities, even in countries where there are where there is an operating fiat currency, a closed community of, say, destitute people who want to create value out work done by People who otherwise are unemployed and so on can create their own crypto at uh, their own community currencies. And today that community currency can be captured in cryptos. And during the pandemic around the world, the new phenomenon of play to earn created revenue generating models for pockets of communities around the world, right? Family, entire yes. family playing to earn and so on. So the magic of crypto is that it creates a whole new universe where the individual can participate, can create his own crypto, can participate, can generate value and can transmit value. Right. So now the thing about FTX is that a group of people got together, created a crypto and were totally surprised that they were able to give the crypto the value that they wanted to give it. And that investors, both in the crypto and in their company, were willing to buy their story. OK, so that was an aberration in the evolution of cryptocurrencies. And 
aberration meaning that the idea that that any crypto can capture that the amount of value that it did is mind-boggling. It's, it's off the charts and it surprised the issuers as much as it surprised the markets. And the judgment for that shouldn't be on the crypto issuer, but on the investment community. Why is it that they saw what they saw? Why is it that blue chip I'll tell investors... you why. I'll tell you why. <laughs> but anyway, I'd love to hear your point of view first. <laughs> Yeah, the venture capital industry has to be put on trial and, and they need to be examined in terms of the truisms that they, they thought that they were promoting. And at the end of the day, the venture capital industry is subject to trades, bond prices, the cost of risk, right? And, uh, and when the cost of risk goes up, the things that they value as being risk-free suddenly evaporates. So the whole idea of, uh, of what the venture capital industry deems to be valuable is ephemeral. It's not set in stone in that way. Yes. So let me share with you because I interview lots of people in this space and, and I know what's happening. One of the key thing is that even for a small investment, for a small company, it's rare to see when there are investors involved that there is no board. FTX was the first company of any size that had so much investment and had zero board members. So it is very easy now for Sam bankman to say that, hey, I'm, I was inexperienced and investors didn't require me to even put a board to give me advice on that. So I just didn't know. I just didn't know better. And 69 venture capital firms invested money. <laughs> Why they invested money? Because of FOMO, because of everything was happening and because Sam had the right story and the right background. He was from, he was from US. He was like his parents were at Stanford. He was ex-Stanford, all that. So he had the right sort of the narrative, that's the type of people they invest in. So if you're from the right background, you will not have the background checks. But if you're not from the right background, no matter of how much revenue you're making, you're going to have such a tough life raising a single dollar. <laughs> that, that's just the experience because I talk with so many founders, funded, non-funded, people have raised hundreds of billions, people have raised 10 million, people have raised 100,000, people have raised nothing after years and years of trying and years of traction. It's just because of your background. So if you are X, like Google, Apple, Amazon, like X Fang or Mang or whatever they call it these days, or you are X Stanford and all this and you are connected, people will invest. I Even to this day, even like last month, I think founder got $25 million of investment back of just an idea on Notion, like just, which is just like Google Doc sort of thing. So it's just based on that idea he got that. But there are, on the other hand, there are founders with traction and revenue just because they are not from the same background, they cannot even raise $10,000. So th that's just the world we live in. This is not going to stop. This is going to keep happening. That's one element, okay? Yeah. But there's the other element in that, that the venture capital industry moves from theme to theme. Exactly. So right now it's so, AI. The theme is AI for this month. And when they are on a theme, the due diligence on the player on the theme, they're actually looking around to find players that will justify the theme that they believe to be true. If you're an AI player, even if you're a startup and a very initial stages, the investment community looks out for that and then goes up to you rather than you go up to them. Now, nothing that the venture capital industry did with FTX is any different from what they've been doing for the last 30 years. When you see a company like Amazon or even Alibaba, for example, when the venture industry had decided for itself that China was a theme, they went out looking for what about those teams that are going to be successful on the platform era. And uh, Alibaba, for example, was one of hundreds, not one of 10 or one of hundreds 
of, of digital platforms providing information exchange on import and export. And it just so happened that they, that they were able to bet on the right leader. Now, if you take Jack Ma, for example, it just so happened that he was a man of integrity and a man of convictions and he carried his ideas through and also a man of integrity that he carried his ideas through. If it was just one person different, we might have seen a very different story from, from that phase. Absolutely, and so, yes. And so it's the same story in the crypto space. In as much as there's, there's one Sam Bankman tribe, SPF, there are others uh, who are very concerned about being regulated, being transparent and having high levels of integrity. Now, the judgment, therefore, is not on the technology or on the on the entrepreneur. It's actually on the investment community. Yes. What were you looking for, and what were your criteria when you were assessing Sam Bankman Fried, and and how is it that the Masik, for example, came up in a statement saying that they did a due diligence of seven months? What is it that they could not capture in seven months that a bunch of journalists could capture within a week of the story? So it, it actually puts the investment community on trial to be to be examined. All of the discussions that are underway now on the FTX episode is on the technology. There's nothing yes. wrong with technology. In fact, if there's anything that people need to understand about the technology, is that it is very simple technology. It's not even the same technology required to build a bridge across the river. It was <laughs> who, using crypto technology, came up with an algorithm that created the crypto that they had. And there's nothing magical in the crypto except for the valuation that people are willing to give it. And I think that when you're under 30 years old, when you go in and, and program a crypto, yes. then find that people are willing to, or investors are willing to believe in you. Yes. It just gets, when, you, when your investors are willing to believe in you to $25 million, that's one level. $250 million, another level. When it's Five, billions. <laughs> when it's 30 billion, you're walking on water. Yeah. And your biggest problem is creating enough liquidity by creating enough activity. And that's exactly what Sam, Sam Bankman Pride was trying to do, which is he needed to see activity that was trading on the, on the token that he had created. And then, of course, and also another thing about what he had created was that any entrepreneur starting a crypto has to, has to do two things to make the crypto work. Firstly, he needs to make a community of users believe in the crypto that he has created. Right. And secondly, there has to be users on the crypto. That means that there's some transactions that, that creates the liquidity and the volume. And the, and for any digital project, okay, whether it's crypto or even a website or any, anything that requires transactions, the first few transactions are always self-generated. In other words, the originator has to almost fake. And Alibaba, all marketplaces have done that. All marketplaces all do market, that. Yeah. All marketplaces. Because they've got uh, the, the chicken and egg problem. How do you solve two? segments at the same time so they go and list their own properties or they go and list their own furniture or own stuff and on the other side also they so then they can get they just have to fix one side of the equation not two so that's very common as you say you're 100 percent right and then when you do that and then when you are able to generate the kind of valuations that that goes beyond what you expected you find that you still have to you have to keep cycling because the size of the assets that you created are way beyond what your expectations were and of course, then you go on to leverage and so on. And so I think that he's, he's as much a product of the investment climate that we are in right now, as much as, as, a, as an offender, the cause of the troubles that are under. Yeah. Oh, totally. The thing is that it was, it was so complex and it was so big because what happened was that everyone, he was seen as that he can do nothing wrong pretty much in the whole crypto world. And then every startup wanted investment from him because as soon as you get investment from him, your startup's valuation would skyrocket because he's seen as do nothing wrong. 
And then all the other investors would also invest in your startup. And guess where that startup's then treasury will be held, like at, at FTX or Alameda. So then, and then, so that kind of perpetuated and they had the 50 to 100 or I don't know what the exact number of startups that this happened. And everyone was worth 10, 20, 50, 100 to 200 million. The valuation, they might have not invested that much, but everyone saw that if you're in trouble, you go to Sam Bankman, Fried, if your startup is, and then he'll help you out. That's how it, it was seen so, for a while. So coming back to theme in my book or that yes, touches yes. on trends like this is that firstly, anyone can issue a crypto. Secondly, we are going through a phase where the network world is trying to discover the due diligence required to value and validate crypto, right? And it's a phase. Yes. So that if today Sam Bankman fried did not have underlining governance structure in this model, and he was mixing funds between his asset plus customers and his own assets or his uh, Alameda research assets. So these are some of the due diligence that future users and investors will look out for. And then over time, the discipline will settle in and the ecosystem will settle in. But still, the fraud that happens, and this is something I say in my book, the fraud that happens in the network world is very different from the fraud that happens in the markets world. The transactions world, the idea is for me to defraud you before the transaction is completed. So there is, is there's an evil intent and, and the idea is that I profit at your expense. Uh, in the network world, what you will find, which is very interesting, is that all of the information required transaction is transparent. In fact, if you look at the FTX story, we can actually recreate the entire story because everybody knew exactly how many tokens he had, what other tokens were. Because it's were. all public. Like they're public blockchains. They are not private blockchains. So you can just go and use the ETH scan or whatever and you can see the whole transaction. Even the how there was a supposedly a hack of 400 or 600 million in the recent time in after the FTX saga. And then they paid the gas fees. So they did have the gas fees, the hacker, which was completely the hacker was very inexperienced. So the hacker cashed out that gas fees from Kraken. So they had an account in Kraken with KYC, AML, KYC, and then they used that money to pay for the gas fees to complete that transaction. So Kraken knows, everyone knows who the, not everyone, but the Kraken has it, of course, it's private details, they haven't released, but they're releasing it to the authorities and stuff. So they know who took the money out because there is a whole sort of a speculation that is the insiders or one of his team, SBF's team or FTX team has taken the money out. There's also speculation that this money was taken out too so that it can be distributed to the smallholders or was. So whatever, at least if they can get something out of it. So there's all these things going on in the back end. Yeah, so these are the elements of the crypto world, of the network world that we need to come to terms with. These are the things that we need to be talking about. Not the fact that SPF is a fraudster or, or an evil guy or something like that. Look at the amount of amazing technology that was on display during, throughout the whole process. Then we start to put our fingers on what the nature of the crime will look like in the future. So the more network we become and the more transparent there is there and the transactions are, crime is no longer a fraud. It's actually a deception. And deception is different from fraud. Deception is where the transaction itself can be totally legitimate, but the intention of the transaction, we don't know. Okay. And you and I can transact with each other, but I don't know your intention. So you are able to deceive me rather than defraud me. So these are some of the themes that I cover in my book in terms of how that transition from platforms to personalization will evolve. Yes, that's true.
That's very true. Yeah, I have more questions around centralization and decentralization. Where do you see the future? Where do you see? When I say future, of course, it's a very big world. Future for Western developed countries. Like you know, so, yeah. So again, going back to first principles, what I saw was that someone as original as Adam Smith didn't really believe that big business and intermediaries were good for business. In fact, he said that the small business owner transacting directly with buyers and so on should be the efficient manner for trade and commerce. But that's not how the world evolved. Today, big businesses, huge intermediaries. And then much later, an academic who I think was Nobel Prize winner, Ronald Coase, suggested the reason that there is a, that intermediaries are a very important part of our economy today is because of the asymmetry of information. If you're a small business owner, you don't have information on how much you should pay your workers or how much are your raw materials worth in the marketplace. And because there was an asymmetry in information, the small business owners needed to aggregate and information needed to be aggregated and was best aggregated through big business. And that's why big business is an important pillar of commerce. But the internet and, and the, the symmetry of information has been cured to a very large extent. And therefore, today we talk about permissionless, about and black blockchain technology and so on. But this tension between decentralized and centralized, both in finance as in, as in e-commerce and trade and so on, continues to be played out. I think that uh, a lot of regulators like to see centralized finance for a number of traditional reasons. One of them is that uh, be able to regulate them better. And second is that from a business point of view, from a commerce point of view, large businesses capture profit of transactions better than individuals or a network effect, or so they think. And that's the current thinking in the marketplace among regulators, policymakers, and so on. I think that over a long period of time, maybe a hundred years, we will see permissionless becoming increasingly the de facto that, that society as a whole would be, will be more comfortable with. But it's a huge, it's a long journey dismantling the role of centralized exchange, the role of centralized intermediaries. And so that's why I see the personalization of finance is here, you know, the title of my book, because what I'm dealing with there is that as the individual gets empowered and has greater control over his data, over the, his interactions, how will that play out over a period of time? So I think we'll go through several phases. And I think that the intermediary type of phase will also take several iterations as it, as it unwinds. But don't underestimate the power of big business. Because on the capital side, aggregating data and aggregating capital into large businesses is, is a process that's worked very well over generations. So you, you don't see that dismantling too easily. However, these industries themselves are transforming. Okay. In other words, the institutions, if you look at, you know, how they're configured. So I always say that when you look at a business or a bank or an institution, look at your balance sheet. What used to define your core business in the past? And what is it like now and what is it going to be like in the future? So for traditional intermediaries, you find that the old business model, they used to carry the assets on the balance sheet. And today they're becoming increasingly asset-like. In other words, the asset doesn't need to sit on the balance sheet. So if you take a peer-to-peer -peer model, for example, the peer-to-peer -peer players say that, oh, we don't carry a loan on our books. We match the buyer and the seller. And that's our business and we generate fees. Even banks, they don't carry mortgages on their books anymore. They originate the mortgage and then they hive it off and they sell it off as a derivative to various other investors. So even traditional banks have become increasingly asset-like. So if the businesses of the intermediaries are becoming asset-like, 
and more of the assets are becoming digitized, I think that you will see that the nature of intermediaries and the nature of centralization will evolve. Yeah, I agree. I agree to that. And it's just like software is eating the world and data is the new oil. And if you look at the top, look at the top 50 biggest companies from 30 years ago and look at them now, they were dominated by oil and now they're dominated by tech. And I don't know what it will be in the next 20, 30 years, but yeah. then I can imagine. So in, my, in my book, I say that data is not the oil, data is not the new oil, data is vegetable. Uh, okay. you know. <laughs> yeah, I would love to hear that perspective. Go on. <laughs> is that if you have too much of it, the price goes down. If you have too little of it, uh, the price goes up. If you have too long, if you keep your data for too long, it's not that worth very much. It's fresh. If you keep it too short, it might not be usable. This data has that has that transient quality about it. But it's a perishable. It is not an asset in the way that we think of oil. So oil, you can carry it across the ocean, store it, and then use it when you want. Data is a perishable asset. Okay, so, so it has a time component to it. It has got a, it's got a maturity component to it. It's got a, a value component to it. Now, just taking that view alone helps us to put data in perspective. So something I say in my book is this, that the financialization of everything, okay, because everything can be digitized. Every piece of information on any transaction, activity, asset can be digitized and therefore it can be financialized. When it can be digitized... 100%. And be traded. So that's what I say in my book. In fact, GE, Jeff Amolt, I think in 2014 or so, he made this comment. He said, GE is no longer going to be a manufacturing company. We're going to be a data company and be flowing out of everything that we do. And we're going to be trading the data, okay, both in its, in its users as well as in its financialized form, which is yeah. why it, everything will be financialized, okay, except that not everything can be financialized. So we'll go through a process. Here I say mankind, and I actually borrowed this from, from a historian called Jared Diamond, and he said that mankind has only attained about 17 or so of any animal that is over 100 kilo kilograms and larger. And the reason is that some animals just don't lend themselves to being tamed, like some are too tall, too short, too fat, too thin, too, too aggressive consume too much meat, they are no utility, they're too nervous, all that. So over time, mankind has settled into, of all the animals in the world that you can tame, only 17 of the ones above 200 kilograms have been tamed. So in the same way, of all the data that you can tame and harness and use, only some data will be usable and, uh, and will be the form that we can commercialize and so on. So I think we'll go through the process of Thinking that all forms of data can be can be digitized and therefore can be financialized, but the financialization of, of everything will start to focus on what can be financialized and what cannot be financialized. And when something is financialized, it, the value can be created, can be carried through a network, and then it generates its value or its valuation. And that's exactly what we're finding from on the crypto front right now, that, that the initial valuation is because of the scarcity value of crypto and the uh, role of whales and so on. But once you see crypto being transacted more commonly in everyday life, being used by, by, by the general population, its value starts to change. And what we value as being important is dependent on a number of factors, which we will discover over time. Yep. It is, I think it will come down from trading to utility. Right now, there is a lot of activity in the crypto and blockchain markets that nor normal regular people know it's related to all related to trading and speculation there is a lot of activity that is not related to that 
but that is not used by the day-to-day -day people. It's like the company that I'm involved with, we have a tool to create smart contracts. So whether you want to create like a organization, like a decentralized organization with voting and everything, it all can be done with crypto. Now they won't, they would be tokens, but it will only give voting rights. They won't be able to be speculated on and all that. So they are not being used by because it's not as exciting, but there's like hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of use cases and utilities that software developers are being using to develop tools and new software that we will see and we will use in the next three to five years time. Not right now. Right now, just the quick buck is quite exciting and interesting. Eventually that will die off and the utility will remain. So this is a good time to be in, I feel like, for, for this buck. We are in such early days in the network effect that it's dominated by geeks. Some of the things that you mentioned, only geeks understand that. Ordinary people can't fathom what the asset is, what the utility is, and then, you know, what the practical value of it is, which is to make money. And even in decentralized finance, the people who understand it most are geeks today because they're not just involved in the staking or the trading or the lending, also involved in, in the building of the asset itself. The, uh, the rules, as you mentioned, in DAOs, for example. And one day, ordinary people will do this without even thinking. And, uh, and that's, again, what I mean by the personalization of finance, which is a little girl sitting next to you will be able to program her own money to decide who she wants to pay, what she wants to do, which institutions she wants to interact with, and so on. That's the level at which we will come to eventually. But we are really in the early days of that process. Oh, very early days, as you said, but there is already so much can be done. Just 10 days ago, I was in San Francisco for ETH Global or ETH San Francisco. There were about 1,700 or more software developers building things. This was just purely for building on Ethereum, building software, building products over a three-day. And there were so many products that were built that we have most people in the day-to-day -day life have no idea. They're going to see it in five years' time. There was one that we saw that was like NFT you purchase and that NFT is like a digital SIM card and they send you one gigabit, one gigabyte of data for your phone through that. It was like the number of solutions we saw was completely next level from everything from trading carbon to tracking all sorts of things to... Yeah, it was super, super interesting. Hundreds and hundreds of teams building things. And that and was just one weekend and one small one place. Going back to the FTX episode and what you're just saying, these are being developed by kids, by by yeah. young Pro people students. with just enough knowledge in, in building the source code, the, the programming. Now, that is exactly why in finance, I'm saying, and I'm making a judgment call here, that central bank digital currencies, for example, are designed to fail. And I'm probably the most vocal or rather the person who is the clearest in saying that it will eventually fail for the simple reason that the CBDCs will not be able to keep up with the amount of technology, capital, and resources that are being put into any one of the major cryptocurrencies. If you take Solana, for example, there are 300,000 programmers working on it. And a central bank digital currency just cannot compete on that front. And the utilities and, and also the transition itself, you know, how the technology itself will evolve, is a lot more uh, aggressive on stable coins, on cryptocurrencies, than they are on central bank digital currencies. So these are some of the... That I'm making just by looking at the reality of the on the ground in terms of where the technology activity is. 
And for a crypto to be able to capture $12 billion or $8 billion worth of capital in order to, very few central banks have the ability to generate that amount of capital to 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 promote their respective central bank digital currencies. Central bank digital currencies, the idea that a government can or a central party can 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 take over the opportunity of, of harnessing a technology and then owning it. And the fact that the technology is not a development in a point in time, but it's a continuous development that continues to evolve. So you need to also add that element into the to, into the thinking of any technology that it will keep evolving and the utility of it will be highly personalized to the individual. Just that whole dimension just makes central bank digital currencies totally unable to keep up. Yeah, and the other thing is that most of these blockchains are open source or open source or eh, completely decentralized. There is no owner, Ethereum or Bitcoin, who's the central manager for Bitcoin. There is no one who's the, um, um, yes, they had the founding team and developers who worked on it, but there is no such sort of central authority. It's open for anyone to develop on and keep going and building on it. So just to that point, there's something else that I say in my book, which is that the banking industry totally misunderstood the API revolution and, and they wanted to own the API revolution and open source. So I think that they were slow on open source and they totally misunderstood the API revolution. So they thought, and they also continued to misunderstand blockchain. So they started off by only making it possible blockchain and centralized blockchains, which is not the net intention of the technology at all. You know, so the banks has wasted at least the last five years trying to harness blockchain. And now a few banks are coming into coming around to the conclusion that permissionless is okay because even in terms of validating the identity of the user, permissionless technology is far ahead than, than anything that they've created in house. So they're following the technology, they're not reading the technology. And open source is, is a way of thinking which traditional institutions just don't don't want to go there because banks are quite happy having two thousand to ten thousand IT staff doing application development. So we are now moving into a universe where your user accesses you, not you provide products to your user. Exactly and even exactly right. Banks that you have to rethink what product means in banking. Banks start by You are so much ahead of your time. Banks start thinking start their proposition by suggesting that what customers need are mortgages. Customers don't need a mortgage, they need a house. So they were never interested in your mortgage. They want to know how to get to uh, the final ownership of their asset. So then, what should a mortgage be? With a lot of information put into a transaction, a mortgage starts to look very different. It's not a loan. It's an, it's an information portal in terms of you, you can own it for a while, you can loan it, you can co-share it, you can own it, and stuff like that. So bank products will start looking very different going forward as a result. So I go back to first principles and then reconstruct how finance will look like in the future. And let me tell you, it's it's not looking, you know, what banks think that they are creating. They think they're creating a world where the customer is happy with their product. So one of the things I say to banks, for example, is that the data outside your institution will be more valuable than the data inside your institution. And we can't figure it out. We can't fathom it because they think that the static data of the general ledger of the customer's savings account in their, in their database is the most important thing that they have to protect. That's a given. But in terms of running the business, there's a lot more information on the customer that exists outside the bank that the bank now needs to absorb and create a profile of the customer. So just that theme that the data outside the institution is more valuable than the data inside the institution, that's something that uh, current traditional financial trade people 
just haven't wrapped their mind around that yet. They haven't, and you are so correct, and you are so good at saying all these things. Tech companies went through this, the larger tech companies, they were creating everything not open source. So Microsoft had to go through this and then they had to adopt open source because they realized that it's only so many of them, millions of developers outside, but blockchain takes it to the next level. Like previously you had to wait on the company to give API and then you build on it. Now it is on the blockchain. You can see all the data. You can see everything that's going on. So you can just build it. It's so much more permissionless and so much faster. But let's continue back to this because I just got excited <laughs> on how much I resonate with everything that you are saying. In 2017 and 18, I was in, in San Francisco and there was the boom time for, th there was the previous boom, like 2021, the 17, 18, end of 17 was the crypto. They were, so Ethereum went from, I don't know, 80 bucks to 1400 and Bitcoin did the same, went from two, 3000 to 20,000 or 19,000. And then at that time, every bank that I talked to that was looking at a private blockchain, it's like that, it's, it's, that's not what it's for. It's like, that's the opposite of what you should be looking at and developing. And now all those programs are dead. They spent millions of dollars and hired so many people to build a private internal blockchain for no reason. That's, you're just doing, adopting a slow technology. But even in the tech side, it is moving so, so fast with zero knowledge proofs and everything that is coming out on layer two. And Ethereum after the merge already, the gas fees has reduced. It is much more efficient. It is only the first step, which is the merge. There are like five step process and by which is the merge and the surge and the surge and all that. So after the end of fifth step, it would reach over 100,000 TPS. And that's only layer one. Layer two, the, which are built on top of it with zero knowledge and all that. And that's the technology of today that would even make it many times, millions of transactions per second fast. So it's like the future is so bright. It is moving so fast because so many people are building and it is so fast to build and Web3 moves faster than any industry that most banks, most the existing has no financial industry, has no idea what is going to hit them in the next five years. Yeah. In fact, I also say that this will have an effect or an impact on society as a whole. Individuals gain more power in terms of uh, ability to control their own transactions, create their own assets, create their own value, create their own communities. Uh, this has an incredible effect, impact on how society itself will be structured. And uh, I think that we will... So that's something that I also cover towards the end of my book, that narcissism, for example, will be on the rise and the individual become increasingly self-centric and then we will need new social models by which so on. So it's not that the personalization of finance is a good thing. It is the inevitable trend where technology is taking us, but it will have an impact and it also, it actually writes the fact that society itself is becoming increasingly personalized or individualized as a, uh, in, in its broader theme. And, and how all of these work together to create a stable, progressive idea of, of humanity, of civilization. That's the theme of my next book, by the way. But, What's uh, your next book going to be on? <laughs> called The Winning Civilization, but basically looking at the different models of society evolving together, basically. Mm -hmm. and, and it's a continuation from this book, which is this book, a focus. My first book focuses on everything I've known in finance and banking. And then my second book takes it on to society as a whole. Yes. Oh, fantastic. I can't wait to, <laughs> wait to read that now. So having said that, do you have a ask? Are you looking for anything? Whether it's for the Asian banker or for your book, what's your ask? So if anyone listening, they can do that. Oh, get the book. You can visit my website, which is emmanueldaniel.com. Uh, yeah. Get all the information on the book, the title, the table of contents, and what different people have said about the book. 
So then, and I don't edit any of this stuff because I totally respect the highly informed views of some of the key people in society and in the industry. So I'm very happy about the, the impact that the book has had so far. And I'm, I'm happy to be tested. And so far, when I test the core ideas in terms of the framework by which, you know, the technology and the industry, the finance industry will make that transition. It's on course. It's, it's progressing exactly as I imagined it to. But more important is to give us a framework by which to track the evolution. Every single activity or outburst of incidences like FTX and before that, we had Do, Dong, uh, Do Kwan, you know, Do Kwan, yeah, Luna, Luna. Celsius, yes. And so on. It, it's the bad actors. They show up the, the need for more structure in the process, but the structure itself is just progressing as it should. So nothing that has happened in the reason blow-ups invalidates much of the industry itself towards greater personalization. Oh, that's fantastic. What about you as personally, you go and speak at events? Are you looking for any opportunities like that? Just in case if someone's listening. But I find that I'm actually designing a training program based on my on my book and the general outline of how to look at innovation in finance. I like working with in institutions internally, and so I have I do have consulting type assignments, and I enjoy that very much because it's not just ideas. It's so how do you practically apply what has been an important trend? How do you apply them to an institution? which still has to make money from net interest margins at the deposit level, which is competing with a new digital wallet that is being promoted by a non-bank in, in the local market in different countries and so on. I enjoy helping either fintechs or banks think through what they need to, how they need to architecture their, their own innovations and what they need to focus on because every market is very different at different mm-hmm. stages in developing. If you say reaching the unbanked in a large country, which is like Indonesia or China, which is 200 million, or 1.5 billion people. It's a different story from if you're a very small country and so on. So I like applying themes that I've created to practical issues and problems. Speaking engagements, happy to. I have some key ideas that I'll be very happy to share with, with your listeners and their organizations. Oh, fantastic. It's great to, yeah, great to hear that. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to put all the links to your book, to your website, to the Asian Banker website, all those in the description, in the show notes. So if anyone wants, they can reach out to you and they can connect with you. Thank you very much, Sam. Yes. So we were just jamming as we were talking, but everything that we've talked about are based on real issues that, that are taking place today in the industry, both on the technology front as well and as the finance. Yes. Itself. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that, that's so true. There's so many things I'm sure we can talk about. This is could be interesting. I can use it as a segment because I used to think that a lot of the cryptocurrencies, especially like Bitcoin, is deflationary. And deflationary is as bad as extreme hyperinflation. Japan has been dealing with deflation for last three decades and it's not going well for them. It's like, why? Because deflationary, the economy shrinks if if your main currency is deflationary because people don't want to spend it. Otherwise, it's going to be the current money is going to be worth so much more. Why not just wait? And spend it later. That's why most central banks target 1% to 2% inflation rate. In my view, I don't know. I could be wrong. It's just like the case, the famous case of that pizza guy who paid in, oh, guy who bought pizza and he paid $10 million in Bitcoin. You know, you don't want to be feeling like that. So you don't spend money. So that's why it's like the currencies had to be stable or slightly inflationary. And I used to think. Yeah, go on. That, that no one is going to use any cryptocurrency for like transactions. 
But then that was Bitcoin. That was the, that is deflationary, but not the other over time. If you look at not just one or two months, but over time, Bitcoin is in a way it's deflationary, deflationary because its value increases so much. But I wasn't thinking in terms of store of value. So Bitcoin is used as store of value, but there's lots of other currencies in even in the crypto world that are not deflationary. And the one key innovation that most people don't think about and talk about is stable coins that have completely changed the game. It's like I've been hiring people all around the world and in a lot of jurisdictions there where they don't have PayPal and they don't have other things. I used to pay them with Bitcoin, then with Ethereum. And then the gas fees was high. A Bitcoin was fluctuating too much. So they don't know what, you know, and fluctuation is the big thing. But stable coins solve this. So now they all want to be paid in just USDC. And then they know exactly what it's worth with one to one. So where, if they're in Argentina or Nigeria, where their currencies are going all over the place, they can be sure. And it's in seconds, in fraction of a second, USDC, you can move from one wallet to another. And that's how they want to be paid now, which is absolutely fine. And so much of the innovation in the crypto world is now being built on stable coins as a method of transmitting value. Another example of someone bought the house the other day using smart contracts and it's they, instead of paying 7-8% commission to their estate agents and all that and legal paperwork, the same smart contract is used as a template over and over again for different houses, just the addresses change. And then and then the money was transacted in stable coins, fraction of they managed to save 5%. Instead of 7, 8%, it was 2.5% in total, their trans transaction cost. And it was done in seconds, in minutes, rather than hours or days or weeks or something like that. So that is that is the thing that people should really look at. And if you now look at the top 10 coins by market cap, I think four or five of them in the top 10 are stable coins. And there is a reason for that. I won't be surprised if they are worth more, the stable coins in the next little while, in the next couple of years, unless there is some new innovation that I don't cannot even foresee. Yeah. So in my book, the last two chapters, I outline the transition that society itself makes. And in fact, I borrow an idea from an amazing intellectual from the 1990s who came up with this idea that society evolves from tribes to institutions to markets to networks. So what you just described, we need to contextualize which part of the transition are we talking about. Bitcoin in the market space is subject to all of the same rules as any security. So when Charlie Munger, Warren Buffett says, oh, coin, it's it is a non, not, not a, a value-producing asset. It's not an income-generating asset and so on. They're absolutely right because you're talking about a security that exists in the market space of human evolution. And we are entering the network phase where all of these technologies suddenly take a life of your own. There's nothing to do with what the value is, right? So some of the things that you said about Bitcoin being deflationary and so on, even in the market space, the technology, because it's new, has a certain number of factors in there because it's dominated by a few players and some of uh, just the circulation of the crypto is not yet fully functional. People hoard it rather than transact with it and so on. So in the network phase, a Bitcoin could potentially be worth nothing, but it's, it becomes currency. That, that is that it's being circulated widely because it's, because it's digital and it's trusted. So the fact that it's valued $65,000 in the market space doesn't validate or invalidate the technology itself. That's a function of markets. Now, the thing about stable coins, it's an easy way to think about stable coins as being the more applicable technology. And in fact, I see in my books that my book that banks themselves, every bank in the world should issue their own stable coin. 
outside yes, backed by there so it's the current stable coins they some don't so people trust the ones that do they produce yeah. the reports that how much treasuries they hold how much us dollars they hold how much one to one thanks haven't warmed up to that idea yet they haven't wrapped their mind around it yet and i'm yes. saying to them that they should give up their most treasured business in banking today which is banking deposits and i'm saying look guys kodak invented the digital camera but what do you do it went on to continue selling its 35 physical oh. film around the world as if it loved that product and it eventually led itself into bankruptcy because there was Sony, the uh, iPhone, which perfected the digital film industry. Yeah. And why telling, why were you continuing to sell your 35 physical film? And so the same thing I'm saying to banks today that why are you continuing to sell deposits when you don't even provide reasonable returns to your customers? And customers' biggest need is actually to be plugged into their own digital universe where a digital wallet has a bigger function. And a cryptocurrency, whether it's a stable coin or crypto, has a better function than, than bank, traditional bank deposits that goes back to, to say how much money you have. So I'm saying all these things, but as we make the transition, you will find that crypto will take a life and a value that's not, that's not dependent on, on, on it as a security. Whether it's gold or, or shares, bond mark, bonds, and cryptos, they're all, they're all interrelated in terms of how they respond to market functions, inflations, interest rates, and so on. But in the network world, there's a whole different dimension of market functions, which has to do with how people share information with each other. Now, information is the only asset that is in value the more you share. And so if you see crypto as a, as, an, as a piece of information, information is the only asset that when I give it to you, I don't lose it, but I have to give it to 100 people for me to become more powerful. Yeah. Crypto or any transactional asset network world has a similar sort of valuation, which increases in value the more it's utilized. Okay, so I think we're getting there and we will, I can see the transition taking place. And you're right, the rules will be changed as we move fully into the network yeah. world. Yeah, and this is completely, I didn't see the dominance of stable coins that's happening now. I didn't see five years ago, six, seven years ago, that this is what it will evolve into. Just like I didn't see the value in smart contracts and how, fast and automatic they are, automated they can be. I didn't see all that a few years ago. And that's when I saw, then I was like, okay, <laughs> this is the way, this is the world is going to go. It is so fast. Thank you very much, Sam. It's, it's been, so we've had a great conversation both. On... Both the times, yes. Thank you so much for tuning in and watching this or listening to this episode of the Web3 with Sam Tamani podcast. You know the drill. Leave a comment, please subscribe or share it with a friend. Now, if you are building something really interesting in this space, then reach out to me. My DMs are open. I'm at Sam Kamani on Twitter or on LinkedIn or on TikTok or on any platform. Just go and search for my name. Reach out to me. I would love to help you. I would love to have a conversation with you if time permits. So, Having said that, I want to wish you best of luck to whatever you are building. I know that about 35 to 40% of my listeners are founders themselves. So I want to say best of luck and go build that next innovation.